0: coming to you live from the far side of the abyss it's jonathan stran and Gary k wolf on the podcast.
1: and we're back on track i'm back from very very smoky oh uh, i think we talked about this when we were talking um on on on, on the podcast uh last week from spokane Indeed. the 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 the, the, tra- the weather there was ap- apocalyptic i mean everybody was taking photographs of of red suns and I, I had photographs, which I will probably put on my Facebook page, that were of a lovely rock formation somewhere down the Spokane River. And I showed them to people, and they swore this, they swore I was doing fake sepia photographs from the 19th <laughs> century. But no, that was the color of the air on those days. And then on the last day, not to try to be symbolic or almost, I don't know, portent-seeking, the last day today, um, after the Hugo Awards... Um, Was actually the day of the Hugo Awards, but once the Hugo Awards were there, the air cleared. It was brilliant, crisp, blue, sunny skies. There's, it it was like a bad movie. It's like you get (laughs) good conclusion to the bad movie, and the zombies have all been slain, and then suddenly how the weather turns well, turns good again. I think that was the atmosphere. There was a very um, unified fanish atmosphere. At the Hugos, which I think is the ironic thing of this particular convention. Well, well, before
0: we get to the Hugos, let's leave them on the back burner for five minutes if we can, because we will. This is our, our Hugos and Worldcon discussion, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You are just returned from Spokane, Washington and the 73rd World Science Fiction Convention. I think prior right. to the event, you were doubtful that it was going to be enjoyable and fun. And I think it's true that one of the reasons that I didn't rush to sign up for it was because I didn't feel like it would be a good follow-on from LUNCON last year, which I thought was a remarkable convention and inclusive and enjoyable and young and energetic. I thought there was a chance that this would become an old-fashioned propeller beanie convention. So tell me. There were a couple of propeller beanie fellows there. Which is cool. They they should be there. They should be there. But tell me. Give me your review of, of, of Sasquan. How was it? My review
1: of Sasquan was that it turned out to be delightful. There was some apprehension at the beginning that things might go awry. The programming that I was involved with, uh, and that means pretty much most of the programming I saw, was no better or worse than any other Worldcon. Uh, the city of Spokane, people complain about it being difficult to get to because you have to almost everybody has to change planes somewhere. It will remind you more than anything else, probably, of the Columbus, Ohio of world fantasy. Oh, wow, that's uh, nice. It's a small town, lots of nice restaurants, many colleges and universities. Gonzaga University is a major university. And any university town is going to have good, inexpensive restaurants, interesting craft shops, interesting local beers and, um, and, and things. So it was and, – and, uh, in this case, all of it was within a, a few blocks – well, out within several blocks of the convention center – uh, it was a very scattered convention in terms of venues that might be a half mile away from the convention center. But in terms of the, pro- the quality of programming, my sense was that by the second day, people were um, no longer afraid that tanks were going to roll down the streets with puppy flags flying from them. Uh, it seemed like a normal convention, and the, the tension was, was there the evening of the Hugos, but I didn't think it was there during the rest of the convention at all.
0: Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the convention. Certainly, from afar, uh, and reading the social, you know, following social media uh, about it, I felt more than a pang at not having made it because it seemed to be a well-organized, well-run, enjoyable convention. It seemed to be mm-hmm. a really good Worldcon. It seemed to be a really good follow-on from LUNCON, even though the impression I got was that it was you know, felt smaller.
1: Um, there were—I I, don't—I I didn't see the final figures. I heard 4,100 or yeah. something like that. There were, there were more people. There than I would have expected to see. And it also was one of these odd world cons because of the situation, of course, where you have you know, an, enormous, um, an enormous vote and an even more enormous membership. Um, so the, I, 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 the, in terms of membership, this is the largest world con ever.
0: Yeah, but um, I, I view that as a little bit of a furphy. Uh, possibly. And I, I say that because I think, and I would have to look it up, I think London had 6,500 people on the ground. And this convention had about four which and which is great, and yes, it had eleven thousand paid members, but a lot of them were supporting the Hugo Awards. it would appear, and that was reflected in the high voter turnout for the awards of about five and a half thousand people I think right now before we get to that, I want to keep it back a minute. Two great things happened this weekend at that I saw from from afar at uh-huh. at at Sasquan. the first and the most important is that Fincon won the the, the two thousand seventeen World Science Fiction Convention bid?
1: Actually, let's let's be clear, because I talked to the Finnish people about it, and they were lovely enough to give me a couple of bottles of pine tar soda. <laughs> um, but it's not FinCon. Um, it's WorldCon 75,
0: isn't
1: it? Well, yeah, yeah, all they have is WorldCon 75 in Helsinki. They, they, they spent so much effort on Helsinki 2017 that they didn't come up with one of these sort of trademark names. And people, of course, were saying... Well, it's obviously going to be Hellcon, um, which I don't think it is. But it doesn't have a nickname yet. Uh, well, I've but, seen
0: their but, website and its I, I think it may just be Worldcon 75.
1: That's fine. I think that's, that's absolutely respectable. And as uh, as we've talked about before on the podcast, when I was in Finland this past summer, I've never seen a... First of all, the amount of support they get from, among other things, the Finnish government for doing cultural affairs of any sort, the sincerity, the genuine niceness, the fact that um, that it's, it's, it's a completely English language convention because any convention that seems to involve people from Sweden and Finland is going to be, is likely to be an English language convention. So I think it'll be a beautifully done thing. And everybody I know is, uh, except for specific supporters of other bids, are yep. very happy to see that result.
0: I certainly was delighted. It was one of the two great standout highlights of the weekend. Um, and... I don't know how you feel. I'd like to at some point extend an invitation to the people from Worldcon75 to come on the podcast and talk about Helsinki and about what they're going to be doing. And maybe we'll have a talk to some of their guests of honor because two great friends of ours are guests of honor at this convention. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, first of all, Walter John Williams is guest of honor. And Mm -hmm. I'm delighted about that. I love Walter's work. I think he's a very worthy uh, Worldcon guest of honor. And Nalo Hopkinson, which is fantastic. I love Nalo. It's wonderful. And she's
1: been a loyal guest on the podcast. And, um, and there are also we also have not yet had on the podcast, but we need to, Johannes Sinasalo. Mm-hmm. Um, who, and and who John Hallberg.
0: Henry Holmberg is also a guest of honor.
1: And, and John Henry Holmberg, both of whom, of course, I met when I was at uh, so, uh, and, and And these are all wonderful people to talk to. Uh, So I think that, yeah, we can get a lot of good podcasts out of that, and I hope we get some wonderful podcasts done while we're in Helsinki.
0: Well, one of the things I want to say about this as well is, when a new book comes out, we were talking about this with Aliette the other day, when a new book comes out, it's worth supporting it. You go out, you buy it when it's new, it makes a difference to the writer. Uh, Walk on 75 is only a couple of days old, really. Now's the time to support it. They need the money to build their convention and run their convention, almost certainly everybody does. It's the cheapest and best time to buy your membership. I immediately went out and bought a full membership the day after they, that they won. So I'm now a full attending member of, of WorkOn75. Mm-hmm. I will attempt to remember to put a link in the show notes with this episode. I encourage you, Gary, to join up so that we can actually go together. Okay, and I, I encourage everybody else who's listening to join up as soon as you can. Uh, it will be the cheapest way to do it and it will help support the convention, which is a good thing.
1: And one of the things that uh, did come up in discussions that I heard is uh, that there was there was just, a, you could tell on the floor, uh, going past the bid tables in the dealers room, that there was just an enormous amount of support for Helsinki and, for, parenthetically, for Dublin as well. Uh, but the discussion that comes up, and we've talked about it before, is that um, American fans who don't have a lot of money can't afford an international convention more than once every other year. Um, and if it's going to be an international convention, now keep in, well, the other thing that we, I'm always reminded of when I go to world cons is that the people who make up world cons by and large are not people like you and me. They're not people who read as much science fiction as seriously as they can. There are a lot of people who like to, they're collectors, they're costumers, they're gamers, they're filkers. They love the festivities or they love one or two writers. So, uh, those are the people who may not have a lot of support to go to a WorldCon, and and they want the WorldCon to be in an interesting place. Yeah. So that by and large, uh, one of the things that helped the Helsinki people have uh, have yet to do, uh, and they are doing very well because they've got it on their website, is to explain to people where Helsinki is and what's <laughs> what is what, because wh- wh- when I was there in 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 um, in, in, in the summer. There were a number of American tourists, unconnected to the convention, uh, you know, asking um, asking the people in Stockholm and in um, Finland, uh, "Where's all the Viking stuff?" And they had to explain, "Well, no, the Vikings came after us. We weren't them. You know, they were they were from somewhere else, um, Norway uh, and, and and Iceland." Is. So, so I think one of the things that Helsinki has going for it, and this is advice to them right now. Is that they are of a culture that is one of the taproots of all fantastic literature. Um, the, the the kind of all the Scandinavian and Norse mythology and folklore and that sort of thing uh, is, is is part of a landscape that any fantasy reader ought to want to to see firsthand. And I think that uh, a lot of science fiction readers would want to see it for the same reason. So in other words, what I'm saying is it's worth saving up your money. You know, those of you who count the pennies to go to World Cons. Kansas City is going to be a cheap one. Uh, Spokane was very reasonably priced. I realize this does not impress any of you in Australia or the UK or New Zealand or Sao Paulo at all, but World Cons depend on a certain number of not quite impecunious, but not terribly well-to-do American fans attending. And they really do want to attend. They're not being... Um, they're, they're not being... Jingoistic about the fact. Oh, another European kind. Huh? They're just worrying about saving up the money for it.
0: I've just lost your audio. I was going to say that one of the things that I think is most encouraging for mm. um, Helsinki is that the I saw Australian fans in large numbers saying on social media, well, they're going to go. They're already starting to look at flights and how you're going to plan Mm. getting there. I know from my own perspective, I've got all kinds of feelings about international conventions. I'm delighted to see Worldcon travel beyond the United States, though I also really have enjoyed ones in North America. I'm a little concerned Mm. because there's a trio of international bids out there, uh, one of which obviously has just been successful in Helsinki. And then there's Mm. the Dublin bid and the New Zealand bid, and as much as I want all three to win, I don't think that all three can. No. And I'm beginning to wonder if the one that's going to struggle will be New Zealand because of the timing. Or maybe people will skip Dublin, which would also make me sad because I'd like to do, you know go to either of them.
1: But isn't, uh, isn't there a world fantasy bid coming in from, is it Perth
0: itself? Not from Perth, no.
1: There is is an Australian
0: bid to host a World Fantasy Convention in the works, I understand, but um, it has not yet formally approached the board of World Fantasy Convention, and so that's still very much behind the scenes. It may be successful, I don't know, but even then, that's World Fantasy, not Worldcon, and it's a different listenership. And that'll bring them to Australia, not to New Zealand.
1: Well, the next question I had was, because I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about the, the demographics and the economics of these things. Um, there is a certain amount of overlap between world fantasy and world cons. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not overlap, especially in the media and costuming and gaming and, and flicking areas, which seems to be much more of a world con sort of thing. Uh, so I, what I was thinking was if there was a world fantasy scheduled for anywhere near Australia, that would certainly work against a world con bid. But the other thing is expen- expense. The the votes that came in this time around, Helsinki was an overwhelming winner, 52%, you know, yeah. without having to go into a runoff. And the Japanese uh, bid, I think, came in with very few. Yeah. And part of that is that Japan is perceived to be much more expensive. Two things. One, there's been one fairly recently in Japan. And secondly, that it's perceived, not exactly incorrectly, to, to be a very expensive proposition for anybody coming from anywhere else,
0: I have to say as well, I'm really not sure. And I mean this truthfully, I can't decide for next year whether I'm going to go to Columbus or to Kansas City. Columbus being World Fantasy Convention, mm-hmm. and uh, Kansas City being mid american too, the WorldCon. Uh, I like the look of this this WorldCon that was just run. I like the feeling that maybe it's it's opening up and becoming more inclusive and younger and all those sorts of things, that makes me want to go to that. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sort of tempted. I mean, I love raw Fantasy, as you well know, and as I've said often here, but I'm quite tempted to go.
1: I think it will be a lot like this one. I mean, I think that uh, uh, people are... I mean, I've, I've never been to Spokane before. I've, I've been to Kansas City many times. But as you, as you yourself discovered, people tend to really underestimate medium-sized oh. cities like Columbus, Ohio, or, or or Madison, Wisconsin, or or Kansas City, which is somewhat larger, they have wonderful restaurants. Uh, Kansas City has some of the best barbecue restaurants in the world in it, so, so that kind of thing is working for it. The other thing is that I think the demographic of next year's convention is going to look a lot like the uh, demographic of this year's convention. And what that says to me in terms of what we're going to inevitably get on to in a few minutes, uh, the actual voting, is that um, the, the, the kind of multiculturalism, the kind of uh, variety that we're seeing in terms of uh, nationalities, in terms of you know, race, gender, economic class, and so forth, that's not a function of anybody's conspiracy. That's a function of the younger memberships.
0: Yeah, I think the, so. the
1: younger members are really, really enthusiastic and interesting and much more broad-minded than we, we were, um, <laughs> when I was, well, than we are. Never mind. Let's, let you know, let's just move past that, that, that right away. Just, yeah, you just
0: dug a little like, hole there, Gary. Ah. You know, if I have time, and I won't, I'll, I'll come back and I'll edit that part out because no. Um, no, but I, I think it's actually becoming almost surprisingly and happily a quite exciting time for Worldcon. Uh, and there are other sort of things to talk about Worldcon, some of which ne- you know, neither of us understand enough about right now to discuss, no. which include changes to rules and all these things at the World Science Fiction Society business meeting. But we will leave that for another time. The, the thing to talk about, I guess, is the Hugo Awards – and right off the bat, I think you would join me in congratulating our dear friends, Elisa Krasenstein, Tansy Rana-Roberts, Alexandra Pierce, and the silent producer, on winning a Hugo for the Galactic Suburbia podcast. Absolutely, and it was uh, that was the, one of the first really nice...
1: It wasn't a surprise, because uh, I think you had said something to me earlier, that, that uh, the harbinger of the entire Hugos was going to be the Campbell Award, mm. and... And you were not the only one to think that. So there, there was a sense of mounting excitement. And I know this sounds self-serving, and it is because these are our people. Uh, when Wesley Chu won, at that point, I thought, I think, El- I think Elisa and Tanzi and their crowd are going to win because the votes are going to be you know, straightforward, honest votes. And as much as I would like to have had the Coon Street podcast in the running, which it almost was, by one nominating vote, we're not um, uh, no, if there's anybody else who's going to win besides us, I would just that's love true. to see that, uh, the uh, Galactic Suburbia people. So, yes. And here's the other thing. I want to say that I can say it on the podcast. One of the things that I find uncomfortable about Twitter, because I thought as soon as I heard that, I should get on Twitter like half the audience was and saying, you know, congratulations, Galactic Suburbia. And I didn't. And if you wait two hours, then it's like you're joining a bandwagon or something i Nobody know cares. You can, if you <laughs> could, if you tweet congratulations more than 45 minutes after the event you're ancient history yeah.
0: well i was actually with elisa when the news came through and i know she was shocked and delighted i know that mm-hmm. they all have worked very hard to produce a high quality podcast over the last several years which they've done uh, I think it moves Tansy Rand Roberts into the rarefied atmosphere of being one of the few Australians, if not even maybe the only one, to win two Hugo Awards. Uh, really? Yep. She won for Best Fan Writer the other year. So I'm just – I mean, it's, it's its a really good podcast. I mean, Australia – and I, 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 I count you as one of us in this, Gary. I think Australia has had a very positive recent history in the podcasting community and produced a number of very high-quality podcasts. Uh, Galactic Suburbia, The Writer and the Critic, and others.
1: And, and, and we've joined together with, if you remember, our giant boxing day mm-hmm. mega podcast sort of right. right. I, I also see that, looking at that from an American perspective, that seems to me to be p- more and more part of the inclusiveness. Because while Australia does have a, a good selection of podcasts, you also would not be getting wins for Galactic support, sub- Suburbia, or us if we ever got to that point, without American and British and other listeners yes. paying attention to it. So, again, that's part of the all-embracing sense of that I got from this Worldcon.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the Hugo Award nomi- you know, nominees, winners, and all that sort of thing. The actual lists are all mm-hmm. over the place, so we may not get to everything, and I will certainly link no. in our show notes and all that sort of thing to the, the winners. Congratulations, one and all. I confess at least one result troubled me, Gary, and I still don't know what I think about it. But oh. let let us start very quickly at the bottom of the, ba- the ballot. I was delighted to see um, Wesley Chu pick up the John Campbell Award for Bestie Writer. Yes. I thought he was it was well deserved. Uh, to, uh, Elizabeth Leggett won for Best Fan Artist. Laura Mixon won for Best Fan Writer, and that that's the one that troubles me. I'll, I'll be honest, Gary. I'm not sure really? that's I'm not sure that's all in the spirit of the Hugo Awards or what I would like to think the Hugo Awards should be about. Um.
1: Okay, before I respond to that, explain a little bit further what you mean. I mean, she was certainly taking an advocacy position, and she was certainly rewarded for taking a strong advocacy position. I
0: I think one strong advocate pushed publicly the recognition of a particular effort to write stuff up. I, I don't know. It just feels a bit bitter and sour to me, Gary um and maybe i'm wrong um maybe it's all fine but it just feels a bit off i would like to think that the hugo awards are about some assessment of excellence and have some kind of background to community and i think you see community coming through in these results overall i felt yeah. like this was maybe a bit of a a back a back a back slap or something um, you know so yeah i'm not not particularly comfortable with it, Gary, I confess.
1: Oh, Did you, but you you heard Laura's acceptance speech.
0: Yeah, that made me less comfortable. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, um, without going into it, okay, unpack you know, unpacking that's, it too much. I'm not, I wasn't particularly lovely. pleased. I can, you, you may be, I, can, I, I don't know.
1: You and I have a bias toward, uh, I think, literary discussions, and there are political positions and disagreements within the the science fiction and fantasy community uh, this year especially and I think she was doing a kind of advocacy journalism which historically we've not seen show up in I guess the best fan writer category uh,
0: no.
1: I don't think there's any reason to exclude that uh, and I think that possibly uh, you know, uh, votes went for her because she was she was taking on an issue that a lot of people felt passionate about and ought to be taken on
0: yeah Maybe.
1: You're still not
0: comfortable. Not, not, yeah, I'm not comfortable about it. Um, yeah, moving along. Fe- best oh, fan cast went to our friends at Galactic Suburbia, as we've noticed or mentioned uh-huh. previously. We're not going to go through all the n- nominees because we've mentioned them before. Right. Best fanzine went to Journey Planet, uh, to James Bacon and Chris Garcia, Alyssa McKenzie, Colin Harris, and Helen Montgomery. Particular shout out to Chris Garcia, who's a new father. Oh, cool. Congratulations. You didn't know that? Yeah. I think they had twins um mm-hmm. And he's a great guy and a, a supporter of our podcast, Gary. Uh, so I'm all for that. Uh, the machine that is John Joseph Adams picked up uh, Best Semi in for Lightspeed.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so
0: congratulations to all of them, including our own Rich Horton, who really was the only reason they won. Let's admit it was probably just Rich. <laughs> so yeah, shout out to Rich. He probably doesn't listen. I was very delighted, very delighted to see Julie Dillon win for Best Professional Artist. I believe she's the only female artist to win consecutive Hugo's uh, as, as that, for, for best artist, which I think is excellent. And I should point out that next year at Mid Americon, one of the guests of honor is Kanuka Craft. Ah, uh-huh. which also means that if you go there, you get to see a whole pile of original paintings. I would think awesome.
1: By the way, I was just looking at the numbers since I have the, the yeah the, you know the the, the person the stats, handing yeah. out the, with the with the. the that person was nearly swamped. swamped. I mean, I the person felt and everybody wanted one of these pink sheets. <laughs> papers. Well, I'll run it's through this, and then we can actually talk about
0: numbers see, and stuff.
1: Yeah, people have been crunching numbers for the last couple of days. Julie Dillon's win in professional artists was absolutely overwhelming.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, he well,
1: votes we'll, on past one.
0: Let, let's come back to the numbers in a minute. Let's just run through the the winners, Wait, okay. okay. Uh, best editor, long form was no award. Best editor, short form was no award. Right. Again, I've got, I've got I'm going to, side comment, I have mixed feelings about this as well. Uh, I, I, Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Best dramatic presentation, short form, went to Orphan Black. Long form went to Guardians of the Galaxy. Best graphic story went to Ms. Marvel 1, No Normal, written by G. Willow Wilson. Uh, mm-hmm. Best related work was no award. Best short story was no award. Best Novelette, The Day the World Turned Upside Down by Thomas Elder Heuvelt. Best uh-huh. Novella was no award. And Best Novel went to The Three-Body Problem by Sisin Lu, translated by Ken Liu, which I thought was a magical win.
1: Somebody pointed out to me that this is the first time and possibly the only time that it will ever happen in Hugo history that no English language fiction won a Hugo.
0: I think that's probably a fair bet. This is also, I mean, if you want to run down historical sort of stats things... First, we have now doubled the total number of no awards handed out in the history of the Hugo Awards. In the
1: history, exactly. Uh,
0: with five handing, being handed out. Um, and I, conf- I, want, I want to like, unpack the no award uh, in a moment. Uh, mm. We've rec- recognized more stuff. My feeling about this set of results is that given this, the situation where there had been the sad puppy and the rabid puppy voting, this was just about the best response we could get. The way I choose to interpret it is that the extra number of votes, and everybody's wondering who the extra two or 3,000 voters were that ca- that came in this year, they mm. all appear to be fans, true fans. In other words, fans who love science fiction and not parsing any other v- definition of it. I think that's true. And, and they voted in favor of the future. And that, and I, that, that encourages that, me a great deal.
1: I, I, I think that's, that's the sense that was... Uh... Throughout the theater in the moments after the Hugo award ceremony was that this is a this is not an atomized community this is a community which is determined to show itself at least if not the world that it's it 's as unified as ever
0: i think um, that's that's true uh, of course though it is a divided field, and perhaps uh-huh. this is why the most interesting result on the entire ballot is the three body problem by Si Xi lu mm-hmm. and it 's the most interesting because You have a hard science fiction novel, very much in the the vein of Arthur C. Clarke, that sort of thing, that has been produced in translation by a terrific translator and has been lauded and probably only won because it also got support from puppy voters. This is almost without... This this seems very likely, mm -hmm. and I think maybe it points towards some kind of common ground because here Here is a point where a traditional kind of science fiction done at an excellent level has attracted support from all camps
1: that's true. I think I would not go so far as to talk about providing evidence of common ground because it's like you you know it's it, well to use a metaphor that was much in everybody's minds in spokane you don't have common ground with a forest fire, which is what some of these you know
0: Okay, this is now. I want to segue across then to something else because it's Mm -hmm. relevant, and we'll come back to discussing more details. Over at Blackgate, who are up for best semi-prose, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, Jay Maynard has written a piece called "Dear Conservatives, Don't Let the Door Hit You on the Backside on Your Way Out," Mm -hmm. or sorry, well, hit you on the way out. I, I added backside, and where he there he talks about how, despite being a long-time lover of science fiction a reader of Larry Niven, etc etc. he no longer feels like that he can be accepted as a science fiction fan because he's a conservative. And he feels excluded and thrown out, if you like, by the community. Now, what I feel is that I don't agree with that interpretation of events, and I'm concerned that someone like that who is a non-puppy conservative feels rejected by the rest of the community. Because I think that's something think, we really should carefully not do.
1: Well, I mean, okay. There, the, and, and Larry Nippen was 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 there and was being celebrated. Uh, and I think part of the problem is that that kind of fiction is much more a sixties and seventies kind of fiction in terms of what people like. Hard science fiction is still there, and I think you're right. Part of the three, part of the appeal of the Three Body Problem is that in, in many ways, it's, it's a return to old-fashioned science fiction. When Su Xin Lu was in Chicago for the Nebulas, and I was talking with him through Kin it was very clear he was a Clark Heinlein Asimov fan. That's the kind of fiction he wanted to write. He wanted to write it within the context of Chinese tradition and Chinese storytelling tradition, which I think puzzled a lot of people. But from the its approach to science and its approach to the relationship between science and behavior and our response to it. It's old-fashioned science fiction, no doubt about that at all. Uh, I do think people confuse, um, people get confused about, they're excluded because of of a political orientation uh, in their personal lives, and I don't see any evidence of that at all. Uh, I I think there are well-respected, you know, legendary science fiction writers who've had essentially conservative attitudes, ranging from Larry Niven to um, Gregory Benford.
0: I think, though, the rhetoric in social media is quite exclusionary. I think the way people are talking about it, I think the way they responded to the no-award results, and I responded that way myself, so I feel awkward about that, um, I think it creates a closed-door appearance. And I don't think we should do that. I think we should make a distinction. And the distinction that we should make is that if you behave the way the rabid puppies behave, then we reject that behavior. We don't want you gaming our rewards. We don't want mm. you, har- you know, harassing people or whatever else, right? I mean, I'm... However, if you just ha- simply happen to have a different political position, if you just happen to like a different kind of work, well, mm. then you're just as welcome as everybody else. I would hope that, particularly the majority of the sad poppy supporters who came from science fiction fandom, will Mm. be able to seamlessly return to it. I would hope that over time a lot of these uh, bridges will be mended. Now, there are some people on both sides, in fairness, who have no interest in mending those bridges. And a couple of them, and obviously the leader of the rabid puppies, uh, Theodore Beale, is the most Mm -hmm. obvious example of someone who has no desire to mend bridges, and I'm not particularly concerned about that. But for the core of the community, I think we really need to find common ground.
1: I think the common ground has always been there. I think what what we're finding now is an eruption, a pretense, uh, a, a kind of hysterical response that pretends it's not there. And I, as, as, as I can't repeat this enough, The the sense of the room after the Hugo Awards was that fandom may be more united than it's been in years. Not united in an ideological position. Not united because we're all going to be the kind of multicultural... uh, I don't even know what chorf stands for, but that was one of the insulting terms. Oh, yeah. The Korea. That's not what the unity is. The unity is we like good fiction. Uh, Now, here's a point that I will wonder about because science fiction seems to be much more contentious... Uh, about these issues than the fantasy community is. Doesn't it strike you that when you look at a convention like the World Fantasy Convention or the World Horror Convention, where you have authors who are vocally and visibly conservative in interviews, let's say Tim Powers or Gene Wolfe, that this doesn't happen? Yeah. They don't get attacked. They don't get vilified for it. It seems to me that's something which is mostly focused on science
0: fiction. Well, it's also, I think, mostly... Focused on a nostalgic attitude. Now, I don't associate Powers and Wolf and their work and their supporters as being particularly nostalgic about what they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that there is a core, you know, a- assessment in, in the puppy community or what we would consider the, pu- the puppy group that is, you know, sort of concerned with the good old stuff, and they want the good old stuff recognised. And a good chunk of the community is going, well, the good old stuff's fine, and we're happy you're reading it, but that's not what we think is award worthy in 2015. That's exactly what
1: happened. I think the bottom, the bottom line for the puppies is that the, the implicit argument was that this, of course, this narrow cabal of, of whatever, of, of, of liberal, uh, pointy-headed, feminist, multicultural, whatever, that, that, that we have been controlling the awards, and if only these good old-fashioned science fiction awards could get on the ballot, they would teach us a lesson. They got on the ballot, they were rejected by, and you have to assume... They were rejected not by some small core of activists in terms of uh, racial or gender
0: equality. They were rejected by everyone. I think that's true. It's like uh, there's been talk uh, post-Hugo the announcements that people were willing to burn the Hugos down by presenting no award and everything else, and I completely reject that. I think what you saw was... The core science, well, the science fiction community responding, and the truth is that I've never seen such a, lar- a large number of results across the ballot that have been returned by what such an overwhelming margin. I know the margin. Every single respond. category, pretty much, apart from I think Best Fan Cast, where there was a little bit close between Galactic Suburbia and Tea and Jeopardy. But I think everywhere else, there was daylight and a lot of daylight between the recipient and everything else. And that, to me, is consistent with what you're saying, completely, that mm. the community, and not just, if you want, the social justice warrior community, but the science fiction community is you what... Know, sort of, let's, let's say, I mean, the way I imagine it is, there's a group of people who may have been completely ambivalent about social justice warriors, mm. and they lined up and said, well, hang on a minute. This is now in defence of something else. This is in defence of science fiction. Now, I will say, I want to put a call out, and I... I hope you'll join me in this, and that is that I hope that as many of the people as possible who voted for the Hugo Awards in 2015 nominate for the Hugo Awards in 2016. The this pr- is exactly what
1: I. Yeah, this is a point which other people have made, and I'm glad you made it because I think it's crucial. I think part of the problem is that the nomination process has become a little bit lackadaisical. Uh, there are, and, and one of the ironies of this, of course, is that there have always been subgroups that nominate. In other words. The, to, to some extent, uh, the, the puppies were correct in that there was a group of people who wanted were going to go after anything that looked multicultural, anything that dealt with gender issues. Yeah, that group is there. There's also a group of hard science fiction people who have voted that way every year. There's also a group of literary people. I mean, if, if you wanted to, I, I thought about this at several points during the, these debates, and I thought, I, I don't want to get into this, but you know, if you wanted to, you could say that there's a subcategory of, of literary um, metaphorical science fiction readers who really wanted to know why Station Eleven wasn't on the ballot. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: There, there all of people saying, well, you know, we should be giving all the Hugos to Michael Chabon and Jonathan Lethem and Emily St. John Mandel and Aidan Lepucky and that sort of thing. Those people aren't being represented. We need
0: to organize something. I'd also say that I would encourage everybody listening to this podcast to involve themselves in the nomination process and to talk to other people who might be interested in becoming you know, involved in it and to remember that it doesn't matter that you haven't read everything. I That's think a lot of people get caught up. They say to themselves, I'm not well enough read to nominate for the Hugo Awards. Balderdash. You know, By that kind of you know sort of thing, you might as well shut down the nomination process and get jurors in to attempt to cover every single thing or something. This is a popular vote. Let your vote count. If you, if, 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 the only thing you do all year long is read a book by one of your favorite novelists and you want to nominate that from Hugo because you feel passionately about it, do it. And it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if that book is by Stan Robinson or Sarah Hoyt or Eric Flint or Jerry Pornell or pa- Paolo Bacigalupi or Aliette de Bodard or Zen Chung mm. Pick who you like and nominate it. Nominate the work, not the person, but... So that's Well,
1: that, that, the idea, well he, th- this has been kind of the uh, polite agreement uh, among Hugo voters since, the, since it began, is that people would do exactly what you'd say. People would come up with their favorite books of the year, and maybe two or three books, and maybe they only read in one narrow area. Maybe they only like to read space opera. Uh, but the point of nomination is to put that book into a ballot, which then will produce other books, which you then might read outside of your comfort zone. And historically, my understanding, going back in the 60s, that's what happened. You had your own favorites. You nominated them. You found out who the other favorites were. And sometimes you read a book that you didn't know about that was yeah. way better than the one you had nominated.
0: Yeah. But the nomination process doesn't require any expertise about anything. just requires passion and commitment. That's all. Exactly. And, you know, I can t- say as well, for what it's worth, that I feel like I have read as many, if not more, Hugo Award worthy novels in twenty fifteen than I have in any other recent year.
1: It's a very strong year. Uh, yeah, there's some and, great
0: uh, books out. So and, and a lot of very very good short fiction, a lot of interesting anthologies, uh interesting collections, great media. I mean I I mean personally I'm I'm hoping that uh the Road Warrior movie, you know, Mad Max movie will be up for the uh Best Dramatic Presentation next year. There's all kinds of see. other interesting categories to talk about. Right. Tell you know what else I want to t- touch on with these Hugo's before we begin to sort of drift away, and I know we've kept actually pretty focused on it, which is good. Um, no awards. The no awards, as we said, this you know there were five no awards handed out or well announced. They weren't really handed out. Uh, hmm. Probably leaving the poor people at Sasquan with an excess of bases left over. So my commiserations to the artists to have five of their you know bases not presented. That's unfortunate. I think I'd like to. Make a point to, t- to stop and acknowledge the people who were nominated in those categories who would likely have been eligible in any other year, who weren't necessarily just simply the product of slate voting and who found the door slammed in their face regardless. Uh, somebody like you know Mike Resnick who edits Galaxy Edge magazine and has been mm-hmm. a very, done a terrific job there. And is a very, very credible nominee for best editor short form, and in fact, a very, very credible winner for best editor Sh- short form. Absolutely. Uh, and, and similarly on the best editor long form, you know, I mean, they're all, I mean Tony Weisskoff at Bain is a thoroughly good choice for a winner of the Hugo Award mm-hmm. for best editor long form. So I think we have to sort of—I know that there was a political statement being made by people who voted, but I think we have to sort of express some sympathy for these people who probably had a pretty horrible night.
1: I suspect that they did, and I suspect that they uh were aware that losing in this case was probably not a personal vote against them uh You're essentially being uh lumped into a a, a despised group and, and 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 you're right, there were some puppy nominees um that were fine but surprisingly competent. I think the problem is if you're if you're on a slate with some works of fiction. That are, to be honest, demonstrably incompetent, as some of the short fiction nominees were. It's you're you're, you're going to get caught up in in, in an unfair trend. Um, some of these people would eventually win nominations, I suspect, on their own merits. Um, I do think there's an argument that, uh, that 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 a certain direction of science fiction, uh, such as represented by Bain Books, hasn't made much of an effort to, to, to pay attention to Hugo balance simply because Bain books do very well on their own, with or without Hugo nominations.
0: I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, obviously Lois McMaster-Bujold, who's published by Bain, is a perennial Hugo favourite and has a novel coming out in January, which no doubt will stand a very good chance of making the, the young, 2017 ballot. On the ballot, yes. Um, I would suggest. You know, just be, oh no, not because I've read the book, but just because people love Lois Buj- Bujold's work. Though we can already see signs at 2016, is also going to be a very, very significant year in science fiction, I think. But I don't know. I, I, I do. I, I, I empathise with the people who are nominated and who ended up on the wrong side of no award. I would say, and I haven't thought this position through, that I would encourage people to consider anybody who was up this year again for next year, as long as they're not part of a slate.
1: Exactly. And one of the things to remember also is that the no award category was not invented this year. It had oh. been used only once or twice before, but no award has always been an option. And any individual voter in any given year can vote no award, and sometimes that's happened. Yeah. There's, also, uh, there's also been the effect of, of, of the 5% cutoff. So you end up in years in which there are only three short stories nominated for, for a Hugo Award, which is ridiculous. Of yeah. course there are more than three. With one. There, there are flaws in the system. There's no doubt about that. I assume some of these uh, legislative moves are intended to correct that, but the point is you can't correct all the flaws out of a system and still say it's a popular vote system. That's true. A popular vote system is almost, by definition, gameable to some degree.
0: So I think we would agree. A terrific set of results overall. Some terrific Mm. winners. Uh, Mm. Congratulations to one and all friends and people who, who are yet to become friends of the podcast that we hope and encourage people to not will nominate in 2016 and we'll be doing what we can when, you know here at coode street to participate in that process and to encourage you to be part of that process that would encourage you to be part of work on 75 and mid-american Two, because you know sort of people who voted this year i think are eligible to vote next year or nominate next year um and that I guess that we'd hope we'd find, try to find some way past a lot of this too, that we'll we look to you know, not simply reject people who because they were on the other side of this whole discussion, and try and find a way forward.
1: But, but one of the things that's happening, which I a, a, again, there was almost a celebratory air about this, one of the things that's happening is that as a result of this year, and even before the Hugo results were announced, a lot of people, including myself, who had taken the nomination process somewhat lightly, you know, okay, here's Here's a story I liked, and I'll nominate that, but I'm not going to look at other things. I think people now realize the nomination process is half of the Hugo process at that point. Uh, yeah. People who chose not to nominate, uh, people who had been lazy about nominating, people who thought, oh, I'll, I'll I'll, find out what I'm going to read in science fiction this year when I see the list of nominees. Those are the people that suffered this year. Uh, there, there have always been a certain number of people, they're not hardcore science fiction People, but some of my academic friends, they they would look just like they would look in a year's best anthology. They would guide their reading the following year based on the Hugo balance, who's winning the Hugo award. And those people are 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 really being ill served in a uh, in a year in which no awards are given. Uh, but at the same token, same token, the reading list that they use is not what wins the Hugo award. It's what's nominated.
0: It's true. It's true.
1: And, and so the, the the nominations list, I think, is, is a crucial thing. Uh, remember when um, Joe Walton was reading through the Hugo nominees, not just the Hugo winners, uh, for all those years. She made very interesting comments about, first of all, the fact that most, most of the time the Hugo voters pretty much got it right. But that secondly, there were an enormous number of important works that never got Hugos that are still with us.
0: That's true. It's true. So I don't know. Look, I I want to be optimistic about all of this. I would love to think that the whole slate voting issue would disappear in coming years. I'm not entirely convinced it'll happen in another year, you know, next year, but maybe the year after. I also think that um, a lot of people have talked about the Hugos being irreparably damaged, uh, about it being the end times for the Hugos, about the Hugos being burnt down, all this sort of thing. Mm. To those people, I say, that is not what I see. I saw a community that cared about the awards, that cared about the work that was being represented, that cared about the people involved, and that expressed itself. And I expect they'll do that next year, and the year after, and the year after.
1: There's some some fallout from this, uh, but I think most of the fallout actually is positive. Mm. I think there's a revitalization of the community. There was a discussion a few years ago in America about the National Book Awards. And interestingly enough, the same accusations have been made about the National Book Awards, that there's a small cadre of East Coast literary establishment people. One year, I don't remember what year, it was maybe ten years ago now, maybe less than that, all five of the fiction nominees for the National Book Award in the United States had sold something less than 5,000 copies. Uh, They were incredibly arcane literary works. Some of them very good. I didn't read all of them. Uh, But there was a sense then that, okay, the National Book Awards has completely lost its credibility because it's nominating books that no one wants to read. Uh, one of the things that I think the science fiction community is saying to those people who made a claim over the years that science fiction by by women, by people of color, by people from other countries, by people who write in another language, that all that is being favored by a, um, a, a small coterie of advocates. I think the entire membership, uh, voting membership of World Con this year said, no, it's not a small coterie. It's pretty much all of us.
0: Yeah, I think there's, there's some truth in that. And that's why arguably next year's Hugos will be the most interesting of the last two decades. Because well, it will be the chance for that large group to then express its opinions about stuff collectively. Because what it was doing was it, it didn't... It was responding to, to what you're talking about. But it was largely... Yeah. Res, it was also responding to the actions that had been taken to put a particular slate forward. Now mm-hmm. there's a chance to now nominate that in, you know, in in response to to that as well, and that will be different because if everybody nominates, then we will get to hear their opinions, you know. And it may be that stuff that you and I would go on and put on the ballot will not be there because those people express their opinions, and I think that's still a good thing.
1: Um, I, absolutely, and I, I I think the one thing that. I know some people were concerned about it, and I've heard no talk about it at all, at least, again, at the convention. There may be buzz about it. I have not seen any evidence of anybody wanting to put together counter-slates. The whole sense of the community that I'm getting is that the idea of slates is a bad idea. I think that's true. I mean, you could have. as 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 far as I know, keep in mind, this sort of thing may have happened in the past and may have failed in such a way that we would never see it. I mean, I still think, at some point, uh, I don't know what year it was, a few years ago when Stephanie Meyer came out with The Host, mm-hmm. which is a science fiction novel, that there must have been somebody, some, some large group of people who read The Host, it was a bestseller, who probably thought it should get a, a, a Hugo Award, but maybe they didn't quite know what Hugo Awards were, uh, whatever. If, if there was a movement to give Stephanie Meyer a Hugo Award, it disappeared before it surfaced out of the lake. Yes. And you never saw it. So yeah. usually these things happen. I suspect they've happened throughout the history of the Hugos. They usually don't dramatically affect the nomination process. And I think one of the wake-up calls that people got this time around is that, yeah, you need to pay attention to the nomination process and not just the voting process. I think that's true. Which is probably, if there's any message from our podcast tonight, that's it.
0: Yeah, and also I think, I mean, I, I, again, speaking, speaking on behalf of you, Gary, as well, no, uh, we support no slates, not on either side. Not by anybody, no, yeah, not at all. It. You know, uh, we want individuals voting and to see what that, you know, and even if that means that books which I consider almost astoundingly worthy don't make the, the final ballot, then so be it. You know, I would be able to go back to be able to arguing. I mean, one of the, the prices that I paid for the Hugos we had is that I couldn't sit around and handicap the Hugos the way that I love doing and then, which has been one of my sort of most more enjoyable games and sports for the last mm. two decades, because I didn't have a full ballot to sit there and argue over, and that was disappointing. So right. uh, hopefully next year will be different. Uh, I feel reasonably optimistic. So we shall wait and see.
1: Yeah, I, I think at the very least uh, it will be it, it will virtually impossible to bring off this kind of a surprise attack next year. Uh, people are going to be watching for it. the The, the, the message that uh, that this WorldCon sent to future WorldCons is that. Yes, we do still take science fiction seriously, and yes, we do care about what gets our award.
0: Yep. And for what it's worth, I think it was worth the $50 to join mid 2, which I have done, so that I can vote and participate. And I know that a lot of my friends here in Australia will be doing the same thing, and I hope they will be doing it all around the world, and that we will find ourselves either reporting afterwards or maybe even together, Gary, in Kansas City, because you know th- this podcast does go on the road, doesn't it? We need to
1: do that again soon, and we probably will do that at World Fantasy, but yes. I,
0: I think we will go on the road to World Fantasy, and we made a, a passing commitment, which I'd like to repeat here on the podcast now officially, Gary, that should it be welcomed, we will take the Cooch Street podcast on the road to Finland, and we will do Cooch Street live in Helsinki. Absolutely. Yeah, which, which You realize that means that we just committed to doing this for two more years? Um... No, it
1: doesn't. We, we, we could do... why We could do Coot Street podcast specials. We could do Coot Street <laughs> podcast reunion tours. We could do... I mean, for God's sake, you're a Springsteen fan. You know how many farewell <laughs> tours you can do.
0: <laughs> I'm not ready to announce the farewell. Let's get, let, let's get clock around as we... We're moving towards episode 250, which already yeah, is kind huh? of like a really sort of like, oh, my God, 250. Mm-hmm. But, um. I guess that the only thing left to say is that after what was a rewarding convention and a positive set of Hugos, that we wish everybody the well and that we will come back in another week and talk about more science fiction and fantasy stuff, recommend more books, more stories, and find other ways that we can participate in helping everybody find stuff that's worth you know, nominating.
1: And talk to some more interesting writers who are doing interesting things, of which there are more than we can possibly cover. Yeah, seems it seems to me, though, it, it seems to me that... Uh... This sounds. I'm trying to keep this entire podcast from sounding just like cheerleading for we're doing the right thing. There's a there's a sense of relief that comes out of this entire affair that um, that has less to do with the results. Which the results surprised me in their extremity. I didn't think there would be a total repudiation of this, Uh, but I didn't I I didn't think that there was going to be um, any kind of a disaster. But the the tension of the weekend, which led up to the very last night, was how do you plan for potential catastrophes, potential disruptions? Nothing at all i I, I do admire the, the the two hosts of the Hugo ceremony yes, uh, David Gerald and Tanano Reeves do because they kept their cool, they kept things on track. only at one point did David Gerald have to say applause is appropriate Booing is not, and that was barely an issue in the auditorium. And George R.R. R. Martin, who at the post-Hugo Party presented his own you know, um, Alfie Awards after Alfred Duster, had to prepare that not knowing what he was going to pre- be presenting yeah. um, to some extent. Uh, the, the, these were awards for people who either withdrew, were bumped uh, from, from being on the ballot by puppies, um, or in some cases, such as Eric Flint getting an Alfie Award, simply having made sane commentary on the whole thing. But, you know, this this is a party that was organized less than an hour after the Hugos let out, and unless George had some kind of advance notice, they had to be prepared for almost anything at that Alpha I'm sure they party. were. I'm sure. And the one thing this, but the one award which you and I have, which was handed out to people at the Alfie party, is going to be one of these historic Hugo artifacts. And if you watched it, you saw that kind of cryptic discussion of the artist who designed the asterisk. Yeah. And we didn't know what the asterisk was, and it's a wonderful little pin uh, given to people who may have been treated oddly by this year's Hugo Awards. I guess that's the best way to put it.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, a nice thing. And actually, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, David Gerald and Tanana Ten- Review because they did a phenomenal job. The whole, in fact, the whole Sasquan team did a great job around the Hugos, mm. and they deserve great credit and great thanks. For the calm and the uh, diplomacy with which they treated it, uh, mm-hmm. the classy way in which they ran their ceremony—you could tell. I mean, I guess you know, sort of the only thing that I thought was a slightly, slightly odd. I think they sh- maybe should have been willing to run the s- ceremony a little shorter because uh, I know they were filling in because they didn't have as many awards to present. And at, yeah. at, at one point, you could tell when you, you basically got to point you knew when there's going to be no award because of the way it was all happening and the, who was presenting. But nonetheless, I thought they did a fantastic job. David Gerald was a credit to himself to science fiction mm. and to the convention, and I think that overall it seems to be a great thing, and I can only look forward optimistically after it, Jerry yeah,
1: and I think the Kansas City science fiction community, which is affiliated with the science fiction community in Lawrence, Kansas, where James Gunn is and mm. and, and kids Johnson and uh, so so I think Chris McKittrick. I think it'll be a well-organized convention again next year, and I'm looking forward to, to Kansas City. Yeah.
0: Well, on that cheery note, since we're talking right in circles little, we might wind up. Uh-huh. Our thanks again to everybody. Our congratulations again to Galactic Suburbia. And we shall mm-hmm. meet next week.
1: Next week, once again, into the fray.
0: Okay. when we will be then, as we always are,
1: the, the Code Street Podcast.